Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. My guest today is Lindsay Anderson. Some of you may know her as Kitty Kowalski. She's a staple in the New York punk community. Was a co-owner of legendary club Coney Island High, a member of the Kowalskis, Killer Kowalski. This was recorded April 28, 2016. It's an older peer pressure segment and it is a full peer pressure segment. She's got a great playlist, which we cannot air for you on the podcast and I would recommend going back and listening to it because she has great taste in music in order to do that you can go to wfmu.org slash playlists slash dk and playlists is plural plural dk is capital dk stands for Diane Kamikaze and then if you just look It's chronological. Look for April 28th, 2016, and you will see the description of the show, Lindsay Anderson, on peer pressure. So this is an interview segment out of that show. She was on the air with me for a couple of hours. So say hello to Lindsay Anderson, folks. I am here. Well, hi. How are you? I am doing really well, actually. Um, It's great to be back in New York. I got back here about a year ago, and it takes a year to get get your bearings. Like, where am I? So, um, past year has been interesting, but now I'm, you know, sort of got two feet on the ground and ready to rock, so so to speak. And you have had sort of a whirlwind away from New York time. Absolutely. Um, I went to Colorado, which most of my New York friends envisioned me living in a cabin in the woods, you know, something all a people dead or something. Um, but I lived in Fort Collins, which is also an amazing town for both live and recorded music. That's um, where the descendants the, the descendants are based home, there, right? Yes, absolutely. It's the home of the Blasting Room. Nice. Which has produced lots of great records and uh yeah home base for the descendants 
and just the live music scene is surprisingly um, vibrant for such a small town. I always like, you know, my New York friends are trying to picture Colorado and all they know is Aspen, basically. So it's like, picture, <laughs> right. I was, I was like, okay, so Fort Collins is to Colorado what Austin is to Texas. Oh, so, that's a very yeah, good I, distinction. I that, they're kind of like, oh, because they're like, I've been to South by Southwest. I know what that means. Um, <laughs> yes. So <laughs> that's a good seems, comparison, though. That that does actually give somebody an idea of of how that works. How did you find it? Um, well, it was kind of odd. Um, I was married at the time and I'd been out there a couple times because I have, you know, friends who live in Fort Collins. And my ex-husband went out there to be with a guy that he worked with to record a record at the blasting room and then came back and announced the answer to all my life's problems is to live in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I said, hey, you know, I'll give it a shot. Um, Oddly enough, like, leaving the New York area was very scary for me. It was sort of like... I was just like the girl that was too chicken to leave my hometown. Hmm. So I just decided to take a flying leap and give it a go. Wow. That takes a lot of guts, girl. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> it did, you know, and it was hard. But for me, it was time to um, time to come back. My, you know, uh, my family, all my roots are here. And, and I kind of found myself stranded out there. So... I needed to uh, sort of regroup and, and get my book back. And what better place to do it than where you are known and loved? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I hope. I hope. You know, sometimes I feel like Rip Van Winkle, you know, like <laughs> I, I was only gone for five years, but it felt, feels like I was asleep for 20 and then oh, woke well. up and was like, wow, you know, things change around and some, some for the better and some for the not so better, but lots of things are still around that I know and hold dear that have been around for my childhood so that's that's you know comforting that there's still you know those things still exist and they haven't been completely obliterated were you shocked coming back to new york because you were away for i think a pretty uh a time where there was a lot going on just construction wise and deconstruction wise in the city yeah i think the thing that amazes me the most is um it's almost the, the change of the actual skyline itself. Mm. Um, when I left, you know, of course, the towers have been gone, you know, for a number of years, almost a decade. But coming back and that whole downtown area, the west side with the High Line, which I think is a great addition. Yes. Um, but a lot of the building around it and a lot of the building on, like, West 42nd Street all these high rises, I'm like, who wants to pay buy a multi million dollar uh, apartment near the Lincoln Tunnel? Like it's almost a joke, you <laughs> right. know what I mean? Right. Like the great rock and roll swindle. If I was a real estate developer, I'd do that and sell it to like people who don't live in this country, which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, it's right in the middle of Manhattan. It's right near Times Square. Um, <laughs> not realizing. I mean, over there, geez, I, I, it's like the worst neighborhood ever. And I don't mean in terms of crime. Right. I just mean it's like a wasteland and these things dropped. Oh, yeah. It's, it's dirty um, and, and, yeah. 
It's what you wait in line to leave New York and see. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they can't even go to the Cheyenne Diner over there anymore. It's like there's a 7-Eleven over there. And I'm like, okay, you, you bought this multi-million dollar neighbor thing, and the only restaurant in your neighborhood is like a 7-Eleven. Right. <laughs> One of life's cold jokes, I suppose, but not on me, thank goodness. So did you grow up in New York, Lindsay? I grew up in the suburbs. Um, I grew up in Westchester County. So if you grew up anywhere, I think, in the gravitational or commutable tri-state area, like kids from, you know, Jersey, Long Island, uh, the outer boroughs, Westchester, you just hopped on a train and then just wherever you got off, you wandered around. (laughs) Yes. Looking for excitement, you know. Exactly. That it, you know, when when you are in that... It, you you point out a really interesting mindset because I did the same thing. Like as a teenager, like we just got on a bus and we're like, okay, and you just walked around and found whatever you found, you know, kind of. But but you were looking for not anything in particular, but just something different, new and wild or whatever it was. Yeah, it, I remember, you know, just weird things, you know, like, oh, you know, I'd have to, Sometimes even, especially at night, sort of sneak out and you hop the train. And sometimes you have train fare you hid in the bathroom. Yes. <laughs> Got up at Grand Central. And the first thing is like, oh, God, I can't actually look like I'm from the suburb. So it, the there was a whole weird scene in the um, uh, ladies' room of Grand Central Station. Because um, they had attendants, and the attendants were always selling stuff, and they even had a vending machine, which sold this waxy lipstick for a quarter that, like, if you put it on, you needed, like, turpentine to get it off. Wow. But I was like, oh, I'm going to buy a lipstick, so I look grown up. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, yeah, you just, like, stumbled out. You're like, oh, I heard that there's stuff going on in the village. How do we get there, you know? And, um, yeah, just kind of, I always wound up around, uh, Union Square was actually really kind of vibrant and seedy, and there were weird record shops like Disco Mat, and you could score some actually pretty cool records there. Um, you know, just weird stuff, and Disco Donuts. Um, mm. you know, it was kind of a place to meet up if you were going to a show at the Ritz or at some of the other clubs downtown, everyone knew where Disco Donut was, and uh, it was the only thing we could think of where to meet up. Um, <laughs> so, oh God, well, yeah, for all the these people, little, yeah. little joints, and then you just start walking, you yeah. know, and if something looked cool or interesting or funky or even scary, you know, would check it out. I remember the, I remember that the whole sort of ritual well, like showing up trying to act cool, having no idea where you're going. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's like there was no uh, social media and stuff. And, uh, you know, um, thank goodness we have Henry Rollins to tell us that things were better 20 years ago. And I don't even know if that's a good thing. Like, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You kind of miss that complete excitement of random discovery or having to do a little extra footwork. I mean, when you had to, when you were trying to read fanzines or read news about your favorite bands, 
you know, you had to mail a dollar to California and you wait a month to get something back in the mail. If you, you, know, if you got something talk about back. about low bandwidth there. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it was this thing, but when, like, this fanzine came in the mail, it was like Christmas, and oh my God, and now I can read all this stuff. And uh, so, but the good thing is, is that kids that are really into obscure underground stuff, they can find each other all over the world now. And so, yes. you know, that's the great part of it, is that people of like minds, whatever you're into, you know, unicycling, I don't care what, um, right. can find people all over the world, and that makes the world that much smaller. It's not so difficult. I mean, you know, the commodification of, you know, punk rock and you know, hot topic, and here you buy your outfit and you instantly, you know, have the appearance of, you know, being part of the subculture is kind of annoying, but it's nice that kids don't get beat up anymore for having funny haircuts. <laughs> right, yes. I know. So, you know, with everything, it's yin and yang, and I never want to come off as, like, the cranky old person. I'm like, ah, things were better. Um, I just think that things were allowed to... Uh, develop um, more. They had like kind of a time and energy and people were more patient to let something or let even an artist like you know Prince or David Bowie or whoever's you know um, we're talking about now develop. I mean Prince didn't sell records you know until his third or fourth album nor did David Bowie or Billy Joel or you know whoever. You know what I mean? And you know, or people were allowed to, like, play more with ideas. They didn't have to kind of instantly, you know, be um, marketable or fashionable or, you know, whatever. People were just trying to put together stuff with the kit of sound parts, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, whatever you had in your closet or at the thrift store, <laughs> you know, was, you were just trying to make it cool. <laughs> It fit in. You couldn't buy it. You had to make it. Right, know? exactly. Yeah, I mean, so there was kind of pride in that. Yeah, I think, and there was something that was a little bit more, there was, there was more allowing because everybody had their own ideas and there was nobody dictating at the time. It was like, oh, yeah, we're all looking sort of randomly weird and we're all at the same show. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you don't fit in at school either. Great. Let's be friends. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so when did you start playing music? Um, geez, I, I probably picked up the car- guitar when I was 10, and my mom was taking guitar lessons at church. Oh, wow. <laughs> so my mom bought this guitar, this nylon string guitar, you know, for her church guitar lessons. I was playing, like, Michael Rode Your Board Ashore and stuff like that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, once her classes were over, you know, went to a corner, and I think my sister picked it up and bought a Led Zeppelin songbook, and then she discovered boys and got bored with that. So (laughs) here was this abandoned guitar, and my uh, parents had this, like, songbook from the 60s and 70s, and I would pick it up and, like, learn how to play, I don't know, Holly songs or, you know, even these 60s folk songs, and... uh, once I figured out that I could learn how to play any song, this was like this revelation. Mm. So after stealing my sister's Led Zeppelin songbook, 
um, a record came out by a band called Heart, and here was this, you know, Nancy Wilson like shredding guitar player, yeah, <laughs> kind of just like me. And I was, oh, I ran to Sam Ash and I bought like the sheet music, the book, because I thought you know you have to learn this from a book, and uh, learned how to play every single song on the album Little Queen. Nice. I mean, from start to finish, awesome. every lead, everything, you know, from the time I got home from school till the time I was called for dinner, I was sitting there playing this day and mm. more, you know. So I think that at age 14, I was a much better guitar player than I am now just because I, I had more time to do it. Um, well, you laid long. your foundation. Yeah, it's like anything. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I started playing. And then when we moved to Southern California from 80 to 82, which was really vibrant, uh, like music scene going on in Orange County at that time, um, you know, it's sort of like you make friends and you're like, let's be in a band. <laughs> and so we had no idea, again, what we were doing. And we would write, you know, these corny songs like, you know, Society, yeah, let's let's leave about society. You know, like at fifteen we knew something about it. Right. And uh <laughs> World War Three, that's a good one, you know. Um <laughs> you know, all that Ronald Reagan stuff and you know, he was probably the best thing that ever happened to punk rock. Absolutely. And he croaked every punk rocker should have thanked Ronald Reagan for at least their record collection, you yes. know. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> You know, and it just kind of went from there. So when, I guess it was 1982, we moved back to the East Coast. This time we were in Connecticut, and this is my senior year of high school. I didn't know anybody. I didn't kind of care because I'm like, oh, one more year of high school, one. I'm going to play, but I don't know anybody. And my neighbor found um, an index card from, uh, like, on the bulletin board of the local supermarket where nice. he was a checkout dude saying like hardcore band looking for a guitar player and I was like what in Fairfield County Connecticut you gotta be joking so I called the guy and uh, went over an audition and it was kind of funny this is a band called the Vatican Commandos who you know at that you know years subsequent you know became pretty popular in that, yes. you know, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I somehow got the gig, and I think it was just because they were just so marveling that they had a girl standing in the same room with them. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I could hold a guitar and form bar cards and play relatively fast. And so that's kind of where it went, you know. Um Little did I know that this band had already had a history, and their original lead guitar player was Moby, um, <laughs> who I'd become friends with because, you know, like I said, you know, weirdos just gravitate toward each other. Like, oh, you have no one to sit with at lunch? I don't have anyone to sit with at lunch. And, um, yeah, that, that basically <laughs> took two guitar players... <laughs> Me and this guy, John Parsworth, to replace Moby. And I think one of the little things that probably kids today don't know is that Moby is one of the most amazing guitar players on the mm. planet. He put a Les Paul in that guy's hand, and it's amazing. Mm. Um, I've seen him play a whole lot of love live, 
and it's great. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So you know, I was in that band for some months, and then got kicked out just for being a teenage girl. Um, <laughs> oh, good. They didn't know that. <laughs> well, you know, it's like in the hardcore scene where you had to have you know credibility and whatever. You know, it's like whole battle I go I don't want you wearing makeup and you have to wear a plaid flannel shirt I'm like I don't even own a plaid flannel shirt why would I go out and buy one to be in a band yeah you know I wanted to look like you know Debbie Harry or you know Ivy from the crowd or something yeah. I I thought being a guitar player was about being glamorous you know? yeah <laughs> and why can't you have a who wanted to look ugly hmm. Jesus um and uh I couldn't handle it and then um you know, I was dating the bass player, and then, of course, this teenager romance was, you know, took weeks to fall apart, and then started dating the other guitar player. And that's where I learned my first lesson, don't date two guys <laughs> in the same band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, those life lessons. <laughs> yes, those life lessons that, you know, you have to learn by making that mistake. You know, someone yes. could tell you that, and you're just not going to listen. You have to do it and go through it, you know, like all kids, you know, uh, you know, experimenting with drugs or whatever, like you can say, don't do it, you know, but I think everyone's got to kind of go through something, you know, to really figure out that that's a bad idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so then uh, you were in the Vatican Commandos for then a short period of time. Very short. I mean, you know, it was like maybe six months at most. Oh, cool. <laughs> but still, that's a notorious run, you know, replacing Moby and all. Yeah, there was a guy who um, wrote a book, Chris, I'm blanking on his last name, called Everybody's Seen, and it was about the Anthrax Club in Connecticut, which, I mean, you know, yes, <laughs> lots of bands played, in, played there, and, you know, everyone from, you know, big names to small local bands. And he wrote this book, and uh, um, he had Moby write forward to it. And when it was published, you know, he did this sort of like Connecticut hardcore, like Anthrax reunion show at the Mercury Lounge. And so we all flew from our <laughs> respective places, you know. I, I just played a few songs with those guys on stage. Oh, cool. You know, but it was fun. And, uh, and uh, it was funny to see like, YouTube comments, like, you know, uh, with the guys, I was like, oh, they're still rocking. And then, of course, you know, anytime I appear on YouTube, it's like, no comment on my appearance. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys, 30 years later, I could actually play guitar. Like, doesn't anyone want to comment on that? But I don't think anybody cared 30 years ago. I don't think anybody cares now. <laughs> The, uh, oh, Chris Daly is the name of the guy who wrote the book. Chris Daly, of course. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I yeah, no, I don't actually, I, I never read the book. It's something that I definitely should read. Uh, that, the, the Anthrax. Yeah, was, it's really fun, even if you weren't a part of it, you know. Um, I mean, a part of that particular, you know, scene, there's a lot of crossover. And well, a lot the of similarity too. was a very important and, and a cool club. I think I was only at the first one. I don't think I was at the second one. Yeah. Um, I think I had gone, you know, I had gone to both and actually played the first. And, uh, you know, 
um, I've embarked on this project of trying to digitize all my photographs. And I don't have a lot of photographs in that time because, you know, a frame of film of like, oh, my God, I've got to save this. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, digital now, you can just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And if it's garbage, you know, you can trash it. And right. You don't know matter. with the old stuff. Yeah. You get one good photo out of a roll, especially if it's live bands. It's really hard to shoot live bands. Yeah, and that that was tough, especially when the cameras weren't as automated and you really had to, like, know your f-stops and your shutter speeds and your aperture and your shooting with available light. I never, I almost never used an electronic flash. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't like the way it looked. I thought it flattened everything out. Um, and so it was always like this, you know, taking a picture was like a math problem. And, right, uh, right in motion yes (laughs) but it's like i found some really fun stuff like i had some pictures of um i think kraut and i had some pictures of like the gun club but there were so many shows that i was at that i had like flyers with the ticket stuff or whatever i'm like why didn't i bring my camera to that one that would have been interesting like a bad brain or mischief or something Mm. but you know there wasn't i think also without the social media and if I wasn't writing for a fanzine, it was almost like there was no reason to take pictures. Um, so now it's like everyone wants to prove I was there. <laughs> so it's like I'm posting this on social media. Just, my friend would never believe me. Well, it is, um, it's great to see the old pictures, though. I mean, even I don't know if it's so much the I was there, but it's like, oh, thank God you did take a picture. You know, because I didn't take any pictures back in the day. And people and I see photos. And I was like, oh, my God, I was probably standing right to the side of that or whatever. And and it might have been a show that I would never have remembered and certainly not remembered the atmosphere. Yeah. You know, because that's what really comes forward when you see like somebody in midair and, you know, a bunch of kids like holding beers and bags and the whole thing. It's. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's. Yeah, there was such energy to it, and I think that was mainly it. It was just kind of being in the moment. And the good thing is, is that you know now, you know, with a phone, can't camera your phone. If you told me that twenty years ago, I'd be yeah. like, what? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's such good quality, and take pictures that you can, like, you know, document it and document some really cool moments. But you still have to like sift through all the garbage and the noise and. You know, this is what I ate for lunch and you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. So it's, I think now, like, I think, you know, it's, it's come down to, you know, not the art of photography, but it's come down to editing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All this stuff, like, how do you sit through it? How do you pick that moment? You know, so that's what I do now. Hmm. It's just, you know, when I'm combing through, you know, megapixels and files and this and that and the other thing. I'm like, okay, where's that moment, you know? Um, and it comes in un- unexpected ways. So, be like, oh, I don't even really realize I shot that, but I'm glad that I did. Cool. That is a great also the, You brought it up, the memory thing. Um, there was a period of time where I feel like I had no memory. And I think that was a time where I was uh, partying a lot and just like very unfocused, aimless, partying a lot, 
there was a lot of, you know, being up all night or up all weekend and everything was a blur. And I realized, you know, some period ago that, like, I remember this friend was saying, like, don't you remember meeting Prince at Nell's, like, when we were together? I'm like, I have no memory of this. I mean, wow. let alone, like, today I would take a selfie with Prince and be like, hi, dude. You right, know? Right. Um, <laughs> But I was like, how, how do I not even, I could just scrap the fact that I have zero documentation of it, but zero memory? I was like, wow, okay, now I'm really happy um, that I quit all of that stuff at least uh, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, just, and, and that you have friends to remind you. I woke you. up and I like, didn't remember a lot of really important stuff, and I was like, crap, I've just got to stop right now. Mm. And it just was all a blur, and I had no separation. I had no idea even what year things happened. Like, I look at a photograph, I'm like, what year was this? Well, I think so, some, some people have different types of memories also. I mean, I've got friends that remember gigs, exact dates, like, oh, that was uh, December 2nd, 1980, you know, and I'm like, and I'll remember the weather, you know, I'll remember, <laughs> I'll remember like when we were parking, it was pouring rain and there was that crazy guy on the corner that wouldn't move and, you know, like, but I, I never remember dates. I think that everybody has their own way of remembering things, you know, brain processing. So, but at least you have your friend who told you that you were hanging out with Prince. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm glad to know that I did something cool. <laughs> so, well, you, yeah. my dear, you have done plenty of things cool. And uh, we haven't even cracked the, the whole uh, Kowalski uh, uh, family uh, 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 situation. I'll say situation just because I can't think of a word. Um, yeah, well, you know, that, that Kowalski family, which is a good way to put it, um, also has, you know, deep roots um, in, in the punk scene on different levels and also, you know, uh, right there at the heart of New Jersey. Um, yes, yes. And so, you know, that was... You know, an amazing, uh, amazing experience. And the funny thing is, is we played um, a, a hole in the wall uh, underneath where, like, um, what's that bridge called? Not the Gulfers Bridge, whatever. There's a whole neighborhood in New Jersey. It's very industrial. It's right underneath the bridge. They actually shut the bridge down. So it took me a while to get to the gig. To rebuild it, and and sort of the original what I think of as Killer Kowalski, um, mm-hmm. me, uh, Jack Siebels, and Paul Richard from Adrenaline OD, mm-hmm. and Greg Farah uh, played this gig, and we were like, oh, it's you know, twentieth anniversary of all hooked up and goofball, so let's let's play the show and. Uh, and I do, do all these sweating to the oldies, you know. And um, it was amazing because, you know, they booked a rehearsal space. I'm like, oh, God, I don't know if I remember any of this stuff. And aside from the verse to one song, when we stepped in that room, plugged in, and started playing, it was like we were reading each other's minds. It was crazy. Like, <laughs> mm. <laughs> one song 
that Paul wrote that I couldn't, I remembered the bridge, <laughs> but I couldn't remember any of the words. But it was weird. It's like I had this muscle memory, speaking of memory, mm. and it all just bounced back. Like I knew how to play everything, and maybe there was like one song here, one song there, where someone was like, ah, how did that go again? But for not, especially for those guys, having played those songs 15 years. Well, and they've um, been playing so many other things within those 15 years. Yeah, totally. Like, we all kind of branched off and we're doing our own things. You know, I still had the Kowalski's in a different form because, you know, those guys, they couldn't really, they were in, you know, just personal situations where they couldn't, like, tour and do stuff. And I was, you know, anxious to get on the road. And then, um, you know, so they did their sort of own homegrown project, which you know, really good. The band that, that Greg, Jack, and Paul had together sucked. Sucks. Right. They were great. Um, it was great, you know. It was just brilliant. Like, what those guys do best. And, uh, like, Mental Decay was another one. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, they even did some, like, AOD shows. Yeah. Which, um, it, it's funny, because, you know, Paul can be, can seem kind of like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to play that old stuff. And um, and Jack really really cares about it, but it's hard when they do these shows to get everyone together and like rehearse and make it like tight, you know. So you know <laughs> that always wound up not really being, I think, satisfying for anybody <laughs> um, because they could just never get it together. So I was afraid that that was going to happen with us with this, you know, goofballs, you know, reunion show. And it was just weird. Like, once we stepped into the rehearsal room, it was just like, boom, I think we did two rehearsals. And it went, you know, it went great. And to have two people that were probably at least half my age <laughs> come up to me and be like, that was the best show I've ever seen. I was like, huh? Wow. You know, some bar in, um, in Bayonne. Duh. Oh, That's Bayonne. The name of okay, yes, right. The bridge is closed, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay, so the Bayonne Bridge is closed, which... Uh, I had fun with that with GPS. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know that that was you know our our deep jersey roots, and and it was nice to to get back to that. Um, That's and cool. we'll probably do it again sometime. It's just again, you know, life <laughs> life gets in the way. Right, and getting getting you through Bayonne. Or yeah, wherever. I know, getting to Bay uh, next time, you know, I'll have to, like, leave a week in advance. Can you talk a little bit about the progression of the naming of that band? Because you were originally called Killer Kowalski after The Wrestler, weren't you? Yes, and we have um, Hanson Dick Manitoba uh, to thank for that name. Um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to come up with some kind of name, and everyone came to this, you know, band meeting at a diner with their little list of names, and nah, 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 nah. <laughs> and, and I guess Handsome Dick gave uh, our drummer at the time, who was a guy called Moondoggy, who played, he played with the Vacant Lot and the Queers and all those bands, um, he came up with uh, Killer Kowalski. And Manitoba uh, says, yeah, it sounds like a, a star, you know, like Marilyn Monroe, you know, it's got this kind of role to it. I'm like, oh, I'm cool with that, you know, and uh, it just sounded great, you know. Um, Did you know that it was a wrestler? 
Well, yeah, we knew that it was a wrestler, but it still just sounded good as a band name. Oh, of course, yeah. No, I'm exciting and kind of menacing and, you know, all of that. Oh, I love the the attitude. I remember loving the name when I first heard it. I was like, oh, that's a great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, that was great. And, uh, you know, so we released our first single under Killer Kowalski. And we had finished, I think, recording Goofballs. And our record company was like, they were, you know, like getting ready to put it out. And, but there was some transition with like the ownership of the label and all this stuff. So it went to this label where they had had a problem with the band called The Amazing Royal Crowns. So the Amazing Royal Crowns got sued by the Royal Crown Review, mm. saying that like uh, the name was too similar or something, or they were called like the Royal Crowns, the Royal Crown Review. So they changed it to like the Amazing Royal Crowns, and then they got slapped with a lawsuit because they didn't change it enough. And so we had already gotten a cease and desist letter. (laughs) We played hardcore matinee at the Rat in Boston. Mm. Um, Killer Kowalski, who was running a wrestling school, saw the name in the paper, and he, you know, outside of Boston, he faxed over (laughs) a letter from his theatrical agent saying, we must be using Killer Kowalski. So we changed the name to the Kowalskis. But because of this whole Royal Crown review, Royal Crowns, Amazing Royal Crowns thing, they were, like, really reluctant um, to even put the record out. Mm. So they had to say, you had to change the name of the band completely. And I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> the worst thing in the world is naming a band, you know. I'd rather have a sunburn. Um, and so... I went to the head of the legal department and I said, if I get a signed document from Killer Kowalski himself saying that we are allowed to be the Kowalskis, will you let us be the Kowalskis? And he said, sure. So I basically called up Killer Kowalski and said, hey, we changed our name to Kowalski. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Okay. Can you sign a paper to the effect that you're cool with that and that satisfies the cease and desist? And he said, yeah. So I sent him a letter, had him sign it in duplicate, and mailed it back. And I was so proud of myself, like marching That's into great. the legal office with the signed document from Killer Kowalski. And so he signs his... He, you know, we at least had to hang on to some of it, you know? So he signs his name, Killer Kowalski? Yes. Well, it's, yeah, Waldeck Walter Kowalski. Mm. But he has to always put AKA Killer, you know? I mean, right. He uh, he worked long and hard to uh, to get that name. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of like the way I was, and I think my band just sort of was amazed that, you know, just by being a royal pain in the neck, um, I was able to get certain things, like one of our favorite bands were the Toy Dolls, and any time we went touring anywhere, we were listening to Toy Dolls, the band. Mm. And... So I saw that the toy dolls were coming to Irving Plaza. And so I went to the Irving Plaza box office, you know, because I had no idea what I was doing. 
and and I was like, who's the opening act for uh, the Toy Dolls? And he says, uh, I don't know yet. And I was like, we are, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the next day, I called... Um, I, I called the booking agent and I'm like, we've got to be on that show. And he was like, I don't know, it's got to be okay with their booking agent. And I think at the time they were being booked by Stormy Shepherd, and, huh. you know, we, um, knew each other and, uh, you know, had a relationship. I was like, hey, Stormy, and I think she was just so shocked, um, <laughs> that, you know, I was literally like begging and pleading, and I'm like, I'll buy you a pizza and send it FedEx. You know, she lives in California, Utah or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will do anything. I will scrub your floors. And so she was like, Yeah, no problem. Um, and you know, my band was like, You got us on the bill with the twenty old Irving Plaza. Like, <laughs> what did you do? And I was just like, I don't know. I guess I just asked. You know. All I had to do was ask Killer Kowalski. I'm like, you you willing to sign a document? Let's see this okay. So that's, that's um, pretty great. <laughs> doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, My mother always said that. Exactly. Nice. Hey, so um, there's like a million things that we can still talk about, but I asked you to pick a playlist, and I know that this playlist is awesome. So I want to make sure that we get all the music in. Good lord. Um, let's see. Do you have the list uh, in front of you that you gave me? Um, I don't, but I can tell you the first song if you yeah, want. I yeah, tell me what you, t- tell me what you want to start with. You. But and let's, I'm going to start with the Rosillo's Flying Saucer Attack, and that's probably because, A, it's the perfect bass intro to any song ever. Mm. Two... It's the perfect opening song on Can't Stand the Rosillo's just full stop. You know, it's like when you put that on in that song one of this amazing album, it's just like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, and the third thing is it does have this kind of history with the Colsies that when we were looking for players, we'd be like, oh, you have to be into, you know. X or this or that or, you know, you need bands just to try things like mine. And someone would latch on to one thing and call you and be like, oh, you know, you guys like X, so you do doors, right? Oh. <laughs> you're like, no, we don't do the doors. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh, how do we stop all these ridiculous calls uh, answering the ad? And for a bass player, for one ad, we put... If you can't play the intro to Flying Saucer Attack, don't call us. Nice. And <laughs> that's what the ad in the Village Voice said. And so it really narrowed it down. And then basically um, we were looking for a, a base of time, and Jack had retired, and that's when Paul pulled him back in. Mm. So uh, <laughs> because we couldn't really find anyone like that except for Jack. Nice. So, he agreed to play with them. The perfect and that's fit. Kind of a full scope and history of it. Awesome. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. 
Thanks to Liz Berg for handling the in-house podcast duties here at WFMU. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze, Farris, rocker for life and making a difference. Yes, my Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m. for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.